Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to talk tonight about how we can change suffering into happiness. Lest you think that all we're doing is cultivating suffering here. This meditation practice is not just about suffering. There is something else. But it's not easy doing this. And you might have asked yourself, uh, is this the only way? Or there must be another way I can get free, get happy, find peace. It's not easy to pay attention, is it? Especially what you're paying attention to is an aching body or a wandering mind. And so if you thought about trying some other kinds of spiritual disciplines, uh, you probably have some company. I did when I first got into it, I must confess. And I would like to share with you, uh, to start this talk, a little bit of my my own process of coming to um, terms and appreciation for the value of this practice. Um, I, before getting into Vipassana, was drawn to the heart path, devotional path, mainly through, uh, through the writings of Ramdas, through Be Here Now, and particularly touched by his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And I couldn't figure out why, but somehow when I read and um, was touched, there was something in me that opened up that felt really wonderful. And I carried around Be Here Now like a Bible for a couple of years before I uh, asked Ramdas about meditation practice, and he directed me to this this meditation, Vipassana, which when I got into, I was tremendously inspired. It was like coming home. This is a technique that I could really resonate with. And I practiced quite diligently for, for some time. But this kind of uh, practice, when, especially when you're doing it by yourself, can get kind of lonely and kind of dry. And after doing my daily meditations um, for about a year in my, uh, my apartment in New York City, living by myself, which can get kind of lonely in New York, as it is, uh, I just felt a yearning for the old heart opening that uh, the, the bhakti or devotional path had, uh, had opened me with. And so I... Um, I heard that there was going to be a class that Ramdas was doing in New York. This was uh, 1975 by now, and I decided to join that class to to see if I could get more juice in my practice. I went to the class, and after some um, some interactions, it was it was agreed on that I could join the class and. Uh, I was doing that for 
a few months and they were all chanting and doing mala beads and all sorts of stuff that just seemed kind of sloppy to me. You know? <laughs> After I had gotten into the meditation and the clarity of Vipassana, you know, all of this extra stuff, it just seemed you know, undisciplined and sloppy and gushy and sentimental. And I was really caught in between two worlds. On the one hand, I wanted to open up my heart, but on the other, I needed some, some pristine purity of discipline. I went back and forth for about 10 months trying to figure out which was my path. And I would ask Ramdas a number of times, well, what is it? Is it bhakti? Is it Buddhist? And he would say, don't worry about choosing your path. Your path will choose you, which was good advice, although it was very hard to, uh, to be patient with. After some time, after about 10 months, one day it clicked in me that rather than looking at the differences, there was a common denominator that both paths spoke of. The basic teachings of Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, could be summed up in three uh, rules. Love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. The Buddhist approach, the teachings of the Buddha, talk about the free mind being expressed as one that is free of greed, is free of hatred and is free of delusion. And those three qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, it dawned on me, are exactly the same as service, love, and remembering. Except when the, uh, the devotional bhakti uh, people put it out, they just kind of come right out, oh, get into love, get into service. And the Buddhist approach is more it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and what you have left over is the truth. Uh, <clears throat> these three aspects, grasping, greed, hatred, and delusion, are the causes of suffering in our lives. Again and again, the Buddha spoke of the roots of suffering as being the mind that grasps, that wants, the mind that condemns, the mind that is lost in confusion. Every moment of experience we're challenged with not getting into those reactions because every moment of experience has one of three flavors there is either a pleasant quality to it, an unpleasant quality to this moment's experience, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, a neutral quality. If you can think of anything else, let me know, besides pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When the moment is pleasant, the typical response is one of grasping, wanting more. When it is unpleasant, the usual reaction is pushing away, aversion, <laughs> hatred. 
When it's neutral, we generally space out or don't know what's going on. <laughs> Have you noticed that? <clears throat> <clears throat> the Buddha talked about these three flavors in a very um, essential way as far as practice goes, as one of four foundations of mindfulness. The second foundation in the discourse of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling, which in, in this case means the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If we can notice just the flavor, just the taste of our experience without the reaction, oh, this is a pleasant moment. Oh, this is an unpleasant moment. Oh, this is a neutral moment. Then there's the possibility of not getting into the response that creates more suffering for ourselves. As you're going through the meditation tonight and uh, through the rest of the retreat, you might take a look at the movements of the mind by seeing the pleasant quality or the unpleasant quality of any moment and what the response is with that. When we can see with awareness, when we're not reacting with grasping, then the possibility of non-grasping or non-greed is there. Non-greed non-hatred when things are unpleasant and we don't recoil, but we can simply see it, the possibility of non-hatred, non-aversion. And when we can bring clarity and wisdom to the moment, there is non-delusion. Those three qualities, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, are the roots of happiness in our life. It's a very basic law of karma. If you are kind, then kindness and loving-kindness will come back to you. If you are non-hating, loving-kindness will come back to you. If you are generous, abundance is the result. If you are clear about what's happening, then wisdom arises. And so each moment there's that possibility of either reacting in a way that causes more suffering or that can create more happiness for ourselves and freedom. I'd like to look at each of these three um, qualities. First, the one about greed or wanting or attachment or grasping. All a spectrum of this wanting mind. Before something becomes uh, an object of grasping, there is a quality of craving, just this general wanting. And the Buddha talked about it as if you're in, in a dark room and you're groping for something, just looking. You know what it's like when you've got some feeling of incompleteness and you just are looking for some more entertainment. Say you're bored you know, or you're kind of um, um, not particularly um, excited about what's happening. You want something more, but you don't know quite what it is. 
then the thought comes to mind of a relationship or of um, a car or some material object. That's when the craving turns into grasping. Ah, now I've got an object to really play around with. Okay. So craving is a kind of groping in the dark. Grasping, he likened to being in a dark room and finding the object and feeling it in your hand. It's like you can feel hungry going through your day and then all of a sudden you see a pizza parlor. Ah, pizza. And you've got a mission. Once craving turns into grasping, it's harder to see clearly because the grasping is a powerful force that blinds us from what's going on. And the grasping makes certain objects special. It isolates an object. For instance, as you're sitting in, in the hall and you can hear all sorts of sounds, but if your knees are starting to ache, there's one sound that's more important than all the rest that you're waiting for. That grasping, you're just fixed on one particular event. And in that grasping, you can't see the flow of events. You can't see a clear perception of what's going on. You can't see the interrelatedness of events. You're just fixed on one particular experience. You might have noticed a phenomenon even in this weekend of a kind of um, intrigue or attraction to somebody else on the retreat, what's commonly called a Vipassana romance, yeah. or VR for short. <laughs> you can be going through your day quite content and quite pleased about being here, and then all of a sudden somebody catches your eye and your whole meditation is shot to hell. Right? <laughs> And nothing else matters except, oh, I wonder if they're, they're going to pass by, or I wonder what they think of me. It can be very, very distracting. If you can look carefully, you'll see what it's like, the difference between the mind that is not wanting something and the mind that wants. It's actually quite painful. It's disturbing. And it's the cause of our suffering. Because in that wanting, what happens is this moment isn't enough. And something else comes into our imagination as bringing us more completion. And it's a paradox, because the more we get seduced by that, thinking that that will bring us happiness, the more suffering we create. This is from the Buddha. He says, there are many kinds of suffering in this world, and all of them grow from the same source, grasping. When a person knows no better way, sorry, when a person knows no better, he gives way to this grasping, and slow and dulled, he goes through one misery after another. So do not create it for yourselves. Use your knowledge to see how suffering begins and develops an attachment. Again, he says, for some people, contact, the point where sense plus object meet, is enthralling. 
And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. That quality of non-greed. And as we're here, it's a challenge to keep on letting go of the pleasant. Not pushing it away, because that just leads to aversion, but a quality of appreciating it in the moment, fully experiencing it, like with the eating meditation, tasting the raisin, tasting it fully, and then as it passes, not trying to hold on for more. That's where the pain comes, not in the enjoyment of, of, the, of the pleasant. Sometimes we're so locked into the future that we can't enjoy the pleasant even actually as it's happening. I've told the story of my son. I have a, a boy who's uh, almost three. About a year ago, we were down at a retreat in, in Yucca Valley, and we were uh, having some strawberries. He loves strawberries. And this particular time, he was putting the strawberries into his mouth, one after another, after another. And I was trying to teach him to eat slowly, right? And to just swallow what he had had in his mouth before he reached for the next one. And there was this one very poignant moment when he was putting it in his mouth and chewing it, and really so uh, frustrated that he couldn't have some more. And I was keeping the bowl away from him. <laughs> and this one moment, he was crying out, oh, no, and he had the strawberry right in his mouth. You know? <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> We're so busy looking for the next one that we can't appreciate what's here right now. There's a tremendous lightness of mind that comes when we can let go. And the act of expression of that letting go is generosity. It feels really good to share. When we are moved to share, you know how it feels, right? But somehow we, we think that, well, I don't know if I can let go of this right now. We get deceived into thinking, I need this for happiness, when really the act of generosity not only gives happiness to others, but it can give happiness to ourselves. <clears throat> the Buddha said, if we knew the power of, of generosity, we wouldn't go through a meal without sharing it with whoever was around. <clears throat> and the objects that we share are just the currency of our caring. After you've given something away, you don't generally dwell on it saying, oh, I shouldn't have done that a week later. You know, it's gone. When somebody gives something to you, what lasts isn't so much the particular thing that they give you, but it's the connection, that kindness and that generosity. That's very powerful. 
and there's an impulse to, to uh, reciprocate around such a person. In every moment that we can be here and let go of the pleasant as it's passing, we're practicing that generosity, that openness of spirit. The next one, non-hatred. The opposite of that is love, or in the Buddhist uh, vernacular, loving-kindness, metta, M-E-T-T-A. And it's something that can be cultivated. We're practicing mindfulness, and the more we practice that, the more that gets developed. We can practice loving-kindness as well. The more you practice it, the more it becomes a part of you. And there is a metta meditation. At the end of some of the sittings, you've been hearing, may all beings be happy, may all beings uh, be filled with peace. You can uh, systematically develop that in your mind. And it's very powerful, just a few moments of focusing and generating thoughts of kindness can affect our whole being. Just as an example, a short metta that I, uh, I'll share with you now that I find helpful, especially when I'm caught up in contraction and hatred. Okay? Close your eyes for a moment. And think of someone who opens your heart. Just bring them right in. Reflect on them. It can be somebody from your past or a child. Not necessarily a charged relationship. Just somebody who touches you in that uh, pure way. And send some kindness towards them. Wherever you are right now, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you feel my love for you. May you be happy and peaceful. May you feel my love. You can open your eyes now if you'd like. Get a sense of what that did. Just for a few moments, <coughs> some thoughts of kindness. We can generate it in ourselves. That's the antidote, one antidote towards the angry mind, the hating mind. <clears throat> this aversion is, um, is very uh, powerful in its distortion of our perceptions as well. And so we need to, to work with it, with the metta, with the loving-kindness, and with the mindfulness itself. Because when we get caught up in the aversion, it's generally that we're not seeing clearly what is going on. And we can get mildly annoyed or irritated, or judging, or into ill will, having a contracted mind that prevents clear seeing. What happens when you're in an unpleasant situation here on the retreat. 
are you noticing it? Yeah, I'm noticing it. When's it going to go away? Come on, get out of here. That's not true mindfulness. Mindfulness means really understanding the situation and just noticing the unpleasant quality of it and any reactions that we have. And so besides the, the loving kindness, in the moment of clear seeing, we're not caught up in that aversion. There's a, a, a corollary to the Vipassana romance, what's called the Vipassana Vendetta, VV, <laughs> where somebody just bugs you. You might have your own VV here on the weekend. Just the way they wear their clothes, the way they walk, the way they breathe, you know, the way they come into the hall. And they are the cause of your unsuccessful meditation practice. <laughs> it's nice to pin it on something, right? It's not my fault. It's just a VV can be a, a tremendous source of of understanding and growth. On one retreat I did, there was this guy next to me who coughed, and during this this part of the uh, three-month course, we were all sitting around in, uh, in Zen-like style, having our own places, and you were assigned there for the, for the week. And this guy had this bad cough, and it was driving me crazy. And he didn't cover his mouth, either. So. <laughs> but after a while, I wrote him a little note, please cover his mouth, okay? <laughs> But it was just going to be the, the ruin of my meditation. Until after a couple of days, I decided every time he coughed, I'd see if I was being mindful at that moment. Right? He was going to be my check. You know, like somebody says, bring your attention back to the breath. This was going to be my teacher. Okay? And my relationship to that unpleasant situation changed 180 degrees. You know, it was, I was mindful. <laughs> oh, no, I was gone. Come on back. Okay. After a while, his cough improved, and I was very happy for him, but I started to feel sorry for myself because I, I lost my teacher. It's all in the relationship that we have to the experience. And we can get more and more worked up about our problems, not seeing that we're creating the problems. What are we doing with this moment that's adding on an extra layer of contraction and agitation? A quality of openness that we can have with the pleasant, with the unpleasant, can work on many levels. On the interpersonal level, there's that quality of love that is beautiful in a relationship. Sometimes it can be more of a, a bargaining or a contract kind of love. Well, I'll love you if you love me. But other times it can be quite a genuine heart connection. Somebody just touches you, whatever karma you have with them. And it's beautiful. But it's still on the level of the love being out there or the love being dependent on somebody out there. In practice, there are other levels that we can experience of this, 
non-hatred or a loving quality. One has to do with our connection with the Dharma, with practice itself. When I was involved in this Ramdas scene, this, this bhakti path, I had a, a wonderful lesson with him. I've shared this uh, before with some people. But as I was trying to figure out, and he was trying to figure out if I belonged in this, this class to begin with, he knew that I was coming from a very Buddhist, non-gushy place. He said, well, what do you think about God? What do you think about Jesus or about Krishna? And I said, well, you know, I just have difficulty relating to some being out there that is going to fix it for me. I was raised Jewish, and my idea, my concept of God was this powerful man with a beard and a book and a pen, <laughs> big pen, <laughs> saying, you're going to have a good day, and you're going to have a lousy day. And it was very paranoid, actually. <laughs> And then when I was introduced to uh, the meditation, to the Buddhist teachings, when I heard the concept of Dharma, that really resonated for me, which in my mind, somehow the idea of the perfection of the universe, how it's all hanging together perfectly. And I said to him, when I hear the word God, I translate it as Dharma. And then he said, okay, do you love the Dharma? And I said, yeah, I do. I really do. And he said, are you sure? And I said, oh, yes. From the last couple of years, that's the one thing that's really meant something to me. And he said, well, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? I said, no. <laughs> he said, go ahead. Say, I love you, Dharma. I'll say it with you. <laughs> there I was on the spot, but feeling kind of silly. But, okay, if he do it with me, I'll go through it. So I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said the same. And then after a while, one time I just felt it. I love you, Dharma. And I just started bursting out in tears. At which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it was something that I found tremendously valuable in my practice when it's gotten dry, when it seems to get dry. And I should just interject it, uh, at this point, this practice might appear dry, but it is tremendously heart-opening. And I've had my biggest openings uh, through the meditation, I've gotten in touch with that place that really loves the Dharma, that really loves the truth, that really loves the mystery of it all. And I suspect that that's true for everybody here, although it doesn't get a lot of airplay in, uh, in Buddhist meditation retreats. I think it's very important to connect with our love of the Dharma. Why else would you put yourself through this? Through your aches and your pains and your wandering mind and your, all your fears. 
Why else, unless you were strongly motivated by some kind of inspiration or yearning for the truth? And the more we can contact that, that love and appreciation for the truth that's inside of us, that seed of awakening, the bodhicitta, seed of enlightenment, the richer our practice is, the more it can be fueled. When we, at the beginning, took refuge in the Dharma, that's something to reflect on when your doubt is high and your motivation is low. There's something very precious here. There's another level of love that we can touch here in practice as well. Because even that loving of the Dharma has a dualistic tone to it. Me loving the Dharma, loving life. And there's a deeper level of love, of connection, that comes from practice, from the understanding of emptiness. And by emptiness, I mean empty of a separate uh, separation, empty of any um, fixed entity that separates us from the rest of the world, a connection with life. You might get glimpses of it at times when you're out in nature, for instance, and everything else just fades in the background and you breathe deeply and are connected with life. Mm, amazing. And life is just coming through you. You can see that in the meditation practice in a much deeper way when the separation of yourself from the rest of reality becomes seen through. And in that sense of connection, there is just roomness, there is just life coming through you and everything around. And that quality of love is much deeper than me and something else. And that leads us to the last of these three, the non-greed, the non-hatred, and the non-delusion. Delusion, or not seeing clearly, a dullness of mind, also has the, the quality of making us identify with our experience as being my thought, my knee pain, my emotion, my problem, my wonderful meditation, my good looks. And all sorts of problems come when you get into that my this and my that. Then there's blame, and there's credit, and there's feeling guilty, and there's feeling puffed up. You know, I have a wonderful voice. I can sing well. You know, look what I can do. Did you have anything to do with it? Or I should be embarrassed because I'm balding. You know, that's terrible. How can people like me? You know, it's just what's happening. You are life expressing itself through you. When we identify with our experience or with our thoughts, have you noticed it here on the retreat? Oh my goodness, that thought again. You know, I must be a horrible person. You know, 
all the anger, all the jealousy, all the comparisons, all the judgments, how terrible I am. Do you get down on yourself for that? Then there's the reverse. What a wonderful thought I had. <laughs> I hope somebody realizes how neat I am <laughs> for that thought that happened to pop through my mind. There we are, identifying with it. It just pops through. And if we take credit or we take blame for the things that we find floating through our mind, we're going to be very exhausted. And if we take credit or blame for our knees that hurt, or our bodies that either don't listen to us or listen to us, we're going to be barking up the wrong tree. Non-delusion, or what Maharaji called remembering, remembering God, is simply seeing on one level that you're not running the show. You are part of the process. You are the process. And the first step is not identifying with your experience. Not identifying with the moods, with the thoughts, with the, the body sensations. The mindfulness has that quality of seeing through the identification. It's simply this moment's experience. Ah, here's some bliss in the meditation. And when you notice it as bliss, you realize its impermanent nature, that it passes away, that it arises and passes away. Oh, here's confusion. And when you recognize it clearly, you're not subject to a battle with it. It's just what's happening right now. This is a a passage on the magic of naming something. He says, There is an element of truth in the word magic of primitive man. Things that could be named had lost their secret power over man, the horror of the unknown. To know the name of a force, a being, or an object was to primitive man identical with mastery over it. When we can know what's going on, when we can recognize it clearly, it's a kind of mastery over it. We don't have to be frightened of it. The power of mindfulness is that it can bring a sense of fearlessness. It's like shining the light of awareness and seeing it for what it is. Oh, it's just confusion. Oh, it's sadness. Oh, it's just fear. That's all. And that cuts through this delusion of identifying. And as we see things clearly, we see that we don't really have control over our experience. And to try to control our minds or our bodies is exhausting, and it's fruitless. It just leads to more suffering. When we have an insight when we see things clearly, it's not because we controlled it. It's not because we knew it. You know, you just pat yourself on the back when you say, aha, uh -huh, you see, I, I know how things are, or I can control my body, I can control my mind. When you have an opening, an insight, it's because you've let go of your control. 
And so part of this non-delusion is, is giving up the control. And that's a very powerful way to relate to your experience. It frees up a lot of energy. And in that freeing up of energy, when we're not reacting to our situation, we can see clearly the true nature of things. And seeing the true nature of things, we see three primary characteristics of reality. One is understanding that everything, everything is changing, impermanent, anicca, anicca, impermanence. Have you seen anything this weekend that stayed? Anything. Any thought, any mood. How many moods have you had today? Just today, just this afternoon. How many different ones? It's happening so fast, but while we're in the middle of it, it seems very, very real. Uh-oh, I got myself caught, stuck for good now. And when you can see clearly, oh, impermanence, impermanence, while you're in the middle of it, you don't have to be so frightened. So that's one characteristic of reality. A second characteristic, this non-delusion, wisdom, is seeing that holding on to anything that's passing is going to be a source of suffering common sense, isn't it? If you're trying to hold on to it and it's going, you're going to be disappointed. And although it's quite obvious, again and again we need to see that truth for ourselves. Because we always, it seems, unless we're clear about it, seem to get caught up in it. We have to learn the lesson countless times. Even people sitting up front giving you talks Oh, yeah, grasping, that's suffering. And the third quality or characteristic of reality is anatta, or the selfless nature of reality that I spoke about before. Seeing that we're this process, we are the process of life. We're not separate from it. We're not nouns, we are verbs. We are in process. And that non-delusion that clear seeing is what leads to freedom. The non-delusion is also the source of the love and the kindness and the generosity because in that non-delusion, in that non-identifying, we are not grasping at the pleasant and not pushing away at the unpleasant. And so it leads not only to peace but to compassion, to kindness, to love. Every single moment, every single moment of practice that you're being mindful, you're developing these three qualities. Non-greed, letting go, generosity, non-hatred, opening up when things are difficult, and non-delusion, seeing things clearly for what they are. There's no moment of mindfulness that's wasted. And although it doesn't seem like much while you're paying attention, oh, just another in-breath, just another out-breath, it's very, very profound. What you're doing is undercutting the habitual reactions and responses that we go through our life developing. And those few glimpses of clarity 
of mindfulness transform our relationship to the world and to ourselves. There's an element of surrender in this bhakti, in this uh, Buddhist path that corresponds to the bhakti, to the devotional. As Christopher said the other day, it's a surrender to every single moment. It's a surrender to reality as it's presenting itself right now. That is quite a task. This is sometimes called the path with no railings by the Hindus because there's not a guru to latch on to, but it's simply surrendering in each moment to reality. And as I say, there's a tremendous heart opening as well that comes from that letting go and from seeing clearly. And so the truth can come in lots of different packages. It can look like one path is all about love and all about kindness and, and uh, gushy uh, caring, and another path seems kind of sterile and cold. The truth is the truth. It comes in many, many different packages. And what we're doing here is one of the most profound ways to develop these qualities that lead directly to happiness. Each moment that you're mindful, you have a choice to create more suffering or to create more happiness. Each moment of experience, you have a choice to create more suffering or to create more happiness. And each moment that you're mindful, you are developing that happiness and highest peace So let's sit for a few moments before we walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.